Thank you for listening to this audio recording from the pastoral team at Church of the Redeemer, an Anglican church in Greensboro, North Carolina. If you'd like to know more about Church of the Redeemer, its ministry, or its mission, then visit us online at RedeemerGSO.org. If you'd like to follow along, I'd invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we're going to be looking at the last nine verses, verses 13 through 21, and you'll recognize that, of course, as part of our New Testament reading. And as we enter the text this morning, we find ourselves dropping kind of midway into this second book of Corinthians. And so for that reason, sometimes it's helpful to know a little bit about what precedes our text. The big picture of 2 Corinthians overall is considered to be one of Paul's most personal and passionate of the 13 letters that are attributed to him. And in his introductory chapter, this opening volley that gets us to our text, you can kind of feel his passion as he reflects on the challenges of his calling. And he admits with great candor that from a human perspective, the trials that he's going through, all of this pushing against the world, that it doesn't make a great deal of sense in human terms. And he describes this tension, this tension of fleshing out a faith in the midst of a world focused on radically different things, two different kingdoms, two different realities. And then kind of catching his breath, he turns rather abruptly in chapter 5, and he just breaks out in this discourse about eternity. It's as if he is falling back on this reality of life in Christ. You can kind of see it as you read the text, put wind in his sails. The reality that he is reminded again in this short, brief moment that we call life. This world is not our hope. This world doesn't define our reality, and it ought not dictate the way we plan and lead our lives. Paul is reminding his readers, and I'm guessing kind of himself as he reflects on this, that this life on earth is extraordinarily temporary. It's simply not our home. And I don't know about you, but how frequently I need this kind of fifth chapter interjection of Paul to be reoriented in my life by an eternal perspective, because how quickly I can start thinking long-term about what is momentary. My default, uh, my heart default, when I'm not in the Word of God regularly, is that I just kind of want to take up residency here. And in my distraction, this world begins to feel a lot like me. So it's against this backdrop of eternity that Paul goes on as we enter our text in chapter 5.13 to explain just why it is that Paul, he may seem a little bit out of sync with this world. Look at verse 13. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, if we're not crazy, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this. And now listen, as Paul is going to give a beautiful summary of the gospel, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who might live might no longer live for themselves, but for their sake died and was raised. Paul is describing this extraordinary life change to people probably 
uh, familiar with his story, this Saul to Paul transformation, but now he's explaining towards readers the why, the why it has changed, the reason that it's been sustained, explaining that it is this gospel that has taken hold of his life. And he describes it in terms of an exchange life, surrender, the giving up of the ultimate mastery of his life. All of this he describes as the result of a heart captivated and made new by the person of Jesus Christ through the work of the gospel. He's anchored our text this morning in the gospel, and now he's going to set before us his case that if the gospel is indeed true, and when it is believed, and when it is acted on, it changes everything. For Paul, for the people at Corinth he is preaching to or writing to, and as recipients of this living word for us as well. So now having put this spotlight on the gospel, Paul makes this rather dramatic shift in 516 and verse 16, a bright line from now on. Look at verse 16. From now on, think of just what proceeded. In light of eternity, in light of the person and work of Jesus Christ through the gospel that he has become so convinced of. From this point forward, we're going to let the gospel have its way with us. We're going to let it rearrange our view of the reality around us. We're putting on a different pair of glasses. And in verse 16, he writes this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. You see what he's contrasting? There's the gospel perspective, life in the spirit, and there is what Paul calls a perspective according to the flesh. He's reminding us that at the end of the day, there's really only two ways in which we can live our lives. In the flesh, are redirected by the gospel. It's a constant theme of Paul's in his writing, and I would suggest in Scripture that there are ultimately only two ways in which we can live. There are only two ways, lenses, from which we can view our world, looking through the lens of the world, the flesh, or looking through the lens of the spirit, the gospel. You see this throughout Paul's writings. And now Paul, with pen in hand, is addressing the church at Corinth, and he says, in light of eternity, in light of the gospel, from now on, from now on, we have made a choice to allow life in the spirit, this gospel lens, to reshape the way we look at our world and our purpose in it. We want to see the world through God's eyes. And in verse 16 through 21, the heart of our text, Paul is going to make his case that the gospel has captivated his heart, and this gospel radically changes our perspective. It reorients us in three primary ways. First, it changes the way I see the world around me. Second, the gospel changes the way I see God himself. And third, and most personally, it changes the way we see ourselves, our calling, how we relate to this world. Let's look briefly at these three reorientations. First of all, the gospel changes the way in which we see our world and the people in it. Look at verse 16 again. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Paul is saying we're taking off the lens of the flesh, and we're going to take a fresh perspective on the view, our view of people around us. Paul is asking us to stop 
and pause and to reimagine the world from God's perspective. And if we do that, if we think about that for a moment, it doesn't take us too long to understand the change in perspective that occurs in those moments when I see people around me through God's eyes, through the lens of the gospel, rather than what Paul writes according to the flesh. It changes the way I think of our world and those in it. So as I watch and listen or read to the news of the world, this volatile activity of what now 7.6 billion people. It's a rather emotional ride. And from the world or fleshly perspective, I tend to think about what is going on in terms of politics, in terms of economics, pandemics, control of territory, battles for technology. It's like everything is in turmoil. But it's here that our gospel provokes a different kind of question. What if? What if God is in control of all of that? What if our world is not out of control, but that what we are observing is a God who's sovereignly placing people he longs to see, discover this gospel that changes everything Paul's writing about, that human fallenness is in no way frustrating the work of God. Our text is saying shift focus for a moment and let the gospel refocus the world that you're seeing. Refocus it through the eyes of God. And what do I discover? Rather than chaos, it charges me with emotion. I begin to see purpose. This, of course, doesn't mean that our vocations and stations in life don't require a response to our fallen world, to be a voice for change, to be a champion for just causes. But the difference now is that through the lens of the gospel from God's perspective, it allows me to see this overwhelming need of the world, but in the context or counterbalance with a sovereign guide. Our father is at the helm. And that provokes a completely different response in us. It replaces my fear with a deep humility, a confidence, all at the same time. This is the reorienting power of the gospel when it's allowed to do its work. Rather than a world out of control, I discover a God very much in control. Rather than masses of people evacuating a country for no purpose other than survival or a power grab of some sort, I begin to discover the movements of people orchestrated by a sovereign God. Not chaos. Not happenstance. But part of a larger divine economy. guided by the one who loves us relentlessly. That's what Luke is describing in Acts 17. He writes from one man, in other words, from the very start. He made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their land. Why does he do that? Just because he can? Luke goes on to tell us, God did this so that they might discover and find God, that they would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him. 
Luke is reminding us that God has never rearranged the peoples of the earth without the purpose of making himself known, a God reaching into our world, orchestrating the movement of nations. J.D. Payne in his book, Strangers Next Door, writes this. He said, the Lord of the harvest has been moving the world's unreached and least reached people to countries where opposition won't interfere with missionary labors or cost issues. And he challenges us. The church in the West must remember her missional nature and function intentionally, function strategically and apostolically. This gospel lens where chaotic displacement becomes divine arrangement. This is challenging for us. It's challenging for me. There's a tension here. In those moments when I slip back, looking into our world through the flesh, my instinct is to seek protection. I want to wall off what makes me fearful. I look for safety. But exchange that lens with the lens of the gospel, which Paul describes here, and it causes us to dream about endless possibilities for the sake of the kingdom. And maybe what makes this so remarkable now is the times in which we live. I know statistics can be dry things, but these dramatic shifts occurring in our times presents a new stage in missions history. Here's the way one denominational leader described our times. We are living in unprecedented, unprecedented times in the history of our world. More people are living outside their country of birth than in any other time. Many of them are coming to America. When you start adding up all the numbers, he writes, it doesn't take long to realize that God desires his people groups to hear the gospel so much that he's sending them to us. The author is suggesting that we are living in a kairos, an appointed moment. So imagine in this kairos moment, imagine in this appointed time moment, a city in which God would gather people from all over the earth representatives of people from country after country after country. And then in the midst of that city, he would raise up a Christ-following community and place them right in their midst. A people with a welcoming heart, a diverse people, a people with an understanding of the gospel. It doesn't take too long if you've been here at any time at all that I'm talking about our local context. That's us, kind of a front row seat to God's work among the nation. Greensboro, a receiving city, a city which God has placed within the shadows of our homes and our church, and amazing cross-sections of nations and people groups from all over the world. Kind of provokes an Esther kind of question, doesn't it? Why? What is God up to? And I'm not suggesting that, that we're alone here, that we're indispensable, or that we're just the center of God's focus in redemptive history. But this we can be assured, those alienated from God, those distant from him, are at the center of God's attention. His invitation to you and me is to experience the joy of joining with him in such a time as this. Just a few weeks ago, Open Doors USA published its World Watch List. 
2022 World Watch List. It's a report on the 50 hardest to reach countries with the gospel. This is most of these places where missionaries cannot go. The most closed and the most dangerous. Number one on the list, the country of Afghanistan. A country of over 40 million people that has been virtually walled off from the gospel. A year ago, relationships with the people internally within Afghanistan was inconceivable. And now in our city alone in the last few months, close to 350 families have arrived from provinces across the country representing just about every major ethnic group. Over the last few months, I've had the privilege of sitting and listening to the stories of a little over 100 of those Afghan families in our city. A beautiful people longing for connection, receptive to hospitality and friendship. And with eyes of flesh, we might see hundreds of displaced people entering our city amidst economic challenges, amidst uh, housing challenges, city trying to recover from the COVID-19 pandemic. But from now on, Paul tells us, we regard no one in the flesh. And in the midst of this disruption and midst of the imposition in politics, I discover the unfolding of one of the greatest opportunities to reach a Muslim country with the gospel. Some say, perhaps in redemptive history. And of course, Afghanistan is only a small part of our local picture. Can I remind you for a moment the gift we have of living where we live. And if you're not from here, there are similar discoveries to be made in where God has you right now. But for those living in the triad, we discover an amazing story. We have friends from all over the world among us. In Guilford County, there are people now from 54 African nations living in Guilford County. Our Hispanic friends, Greensboro residents now include families now from 22 different Hispanic and Latino countries. And when you add up all the countries represented here in Guilford County, we have people representing 150, 140 rather, countries of the world. Little math, there are only 195 countries on the entire planet. <laughs> Which means that Guilford County has 70% of the world's countries many of whom are considered the hardest to reach countries in the world, are located within driving distance of Parish Park, Farm, and Abbey. 140 countries, 142 distinct people groups, speaking over 125 first languages in English. Our context is a living illustration of the world on our doorstep. And we get to be a part. Who else but God? I recognize there are complexities to migration and immigration and people movement. But here's what I would challenge us toward as Christ followers, that we do the hard work of developing a biblical theology of immigration and that biblical theology rid of scripture, lifted off and applied in forms and challenges and shapes our politics, not the other way around. And a word of clarity. 
a greater understanding of our local mission field in no way diminishes the need for certain strategic partnerships and the needs for presence in other parts of the world. It's a, it's a both and. It's been a joy to have discussions with some of our international community, some who sang for you this morning here at Church of the Redeemer with the potential of going back to work in their countries of origin. These are our friends who know the language, they know the people, and they know the culture. So Paul, having encouraged us to adjust our perspective as you look at our world, now turns his attention to our view of God. The second half of verse 16, 16b. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him that way no longer. He's saying that the impact of the gospel not only reconfigures our view of the world around us, but it also reconfigures our view of God. Why is this at the top of Paul's concern as it relates to mission in the world? Perhaps it's because our understanding and our view of God as both individuals and a church determines how we live out our faith, how we engage in our world. Our view of God ultimately shows up in our decision. It shows up in our risk-taking. It shows up in our lives and how we plan. Our understanding of God is direct bearing on both our identity and the way in which we relate to this world. A.W. Tozer in his work, The Knowledge of the Holy, made this point. He writes, so necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with its worship and standards declines along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. Tozer's kind of chiming in with our text saying, change our view of God and everything else gets rearranged. That's why worship and liturgy are so indispensable to mission. Not just the life of the church, but the mission. It is in worship that we use every resource, all of our senses, our memory, imagination, scripture, taste, touch, smell, to do what? to magnify God in our lives. And as I look at our world, when I look at God through a fleshly lens, it's like looking at God through the wrong end of the telescope. And as God gets small, the problems and challenges that I face enlarge. It is in worship that we revive a true reality of God. It is in worship, the Word of God rightly preached, the sacraments, these demonstrations of God's gift offer that we learn a new way of seeing. Unsure of ourselves in worship, we find our assurance in God, a way that comes from being, being deeply rooted in this gospel. Finally, returning to the text just one more time, verse 18. Paul, having reminded the believers at Corinth that this gospel not only provides a new lens from which to see our world and a new lens from which to see God himself, but it impacts the way I see my calling in that world. Here in verse 18 through 21, Paul now turns to the gospel's most personal application, the primary calling of you and me. And how does he do that? How does he do that? He does that by anchoring our purpose in life to the heart and purpose of God. It's a tethering. It's heart to heart. 
Listen how he speaks of our calling as Christ followers. All this from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, here's our primary calling, the ministry of reconciliation. That is in Christ, God has recon is reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting now to us this ministry of reconciliation, this gospel. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our mission arises from the heart of God himself, communicated from his heart to us. But without this gospel lens, I can begin to look at the people around me, my friendships, my family, the workplace, in terms of doing one of two things, either making my life better or making it worse. In the workplace, people can be seen as either advancing our personal and vocational agendas or they're standing in the way. Enter the gospel from now on. I can begin to look at the people around me, my friendships, my family, workplace. And now my place in this world finds clarity as we get a glimpse of how God is placing and arranging, how he's guiding people in our world, guiding them to perhaps a sphere of influence that we might have in circles of friendship that allow me to now uniquely reflect the gospel's invitation to a friendship with God. I find my identity no longer in titles or the world's applause, but in the gospel's invitation to know my God. I discover the joy of living before an audience of one. This is the work of the gospel. Realigning our hearts around his, intertwining our lives around divine purpose, it seems nothing less than reigniting the image of God given us in creation, a restoration, a God making all things new. Look at Paul's language here, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's rather tender, isn't it? Listen to the words he uses, reconciliation, appeal, imploring a friendship with God, a reconnection with our creator. There's nothing militant. There's nothing abrasive not forceful. Neither do we find our Father wringing his hands. God's plans will prevail. But here's the beauty in all of this. He doesn't need us. But remarkably, he wants us. Our Creator knows what completes us. He knows what makes for a deep contentment, peace, and fulfillment, purpose in life. He wants you and I to feel his pleasure. Text is an invitation. He wants you and I to know the joy of watching someone alienated from God to be made alive in Jesus. He wants us to watch the baptism waters flow over new life, to be touched by God's presence in the sacrament. We don't have to. We get to. You and I, inviters of the healing power of the gospel. 
That's the invitation of our text this morning. That's the gospel invitation. And it is in following this call of living in the reality of the gospel that this love of Christ controlling us that Paul speaks of, that Paul speaks of, is where we find and become our real selves. The gospel. An invitation to live life quorum Deo, before the heart of God. May God grant that in your life and the life of our church. Amen.